So Leonard, can you present the case? Sure. This patient's 59 years old, and I'm quite familiar with her social history because it happens to be my wife. But she was well until February, and on a Saturday course when I was on call, while she was messing around in the kitchen, she bumped her upper arm and noted a lump about 8 o'clock in her right breast. She had previously had a routine mammogram probably about 11 months before that was negative. So Monday she went in, and she's actually somewhat oncology savvy because she was my office manager for about eight years. So she was convinced it was going to be a cyst because it just developed abruptly, and she couldn't understand how she had never felt it or I had never felt it. So we went in Monday, and she had a fine needle, and you know, immediately when they didn't aspirate any fluid, we knew we were in trouble. And then late that afternoon, I got called by the pathologist that the cytology was positive. Since the call came late in the day, I was actually the one that had to give her the news, so that was quite a difficult day. I couldn't really pull any punches because she knew exactly what the deal was. So she went on to have a subsequent have a core biopsy. Could I just she, maybe stop and ask kind of what was going on at that point in your mind and her mind? What happened is she was hopeful that it wasn't malignant, so she actually happened to be at her yoga class at our hospital. So I had to meet her at about 5 o'clock in the courtyard of the hospital and kind of give her the news and we were both sad and crying a little bit but she knew what the next step was and again at that point you always keep hoping it's going to be good so you know now that was malignant we were hopeful that it would be an early lesion and she just was desirous of moving this on as quickly as we could and of course being doctor's wife things moved along very quickly so I think within a day or so she had a core biopsy and that revealed a grade 2 invasive cancer. Estrogen receptor was 3+, plus. progesterone receptor was negative, HER2 was negative. And she had had for about the past couple of months a cough. So because of the cough, actually her chest x-ray and routine labs were negative. They did a PET CT scan. And this was probably the second most difficult day for me after the initial day. I get a call from nuclear medicine that he's found a red-hot nodule in her right upper lobe, about a centimeter and a half with a high SUV. No other abnormalities on the PET scan. The primary tumor lit up, nothing in the nodes. So she went on to have a core biopsy of that lesion, and it turned out to be a typical carcinoid. But I had a tough time that day they called me from nuclear medicine. You know, I had these thoughts. I was going to lose her. But thank God it turned out to be unrelated. So at that point, her sister, who was 10 years younger, six months before, had developed DCIS, And her sister actually had opted for bilateral mastectomies and extensive reconstruction. So I don't know if that played into my wife's decision. She had talked to her sister, so she opted to have bilateral mastectomies. Again, the third difficult day is is I get a call that the sentinel node was positive, so she wound up having a simultaneous axillary lymphadenectomy. So the bottom line with the pathology, she had a 1.6-centimeter grade 2 cancer. There was no lymphovascular invasion. And she had two of 16 nodes positive. Both were in the axillary tail of Spence. And at that point, she wanted to be treated at our institution, but of course, neither myself nor any of my partners wanted to be responsible for making the decision as to what to do here. So I recommended that she see an expert, and it came down to either you or Chuck Vogel. And she decided, since she knew Chuck, and it's easier to go to Boca from Fort Lauderdale than Miami, she went to see Chuck. So I don't know if you want me to just stop and... Yeah, bring it up to date, because really what I wanted to do was not so much focus, and Leonard brought the issue of presenting this case up here. We didn't really know where it was going to go, but 
I mean, it wasn't so much to discuss the medical aspects, although if you have any questions or you want any input on that, that's fine, but just more to take a step back and look at ourselves as physicians and sort of think about this situation. I don't know kind of where it'll go. I don't know what your thoughts might be about it. I just, I was struck by Leonard's openness to seek some input on this. So maybe just bring us up to date on it and then we'll talk about it. Well, at that point, you know, I think the main issue in my mind was whether she needed an anthracycline or not. Mm-hmm. Again, this is probably now back in March, April. So we went up to see Chuck. And again, that was tough for me because I kind of had to make sure that it was her consult, mm-hmm. not my consult. And I will say Chuck's consultation, the way he handled it, was fantastic. Yeah, and sure. basically, he presented her with a number of options, mainly various dose-dense schedules with taxanes. And he did said he'd probably, outside of Los Angeles, be the only one who would bring it up as an option. But he thought TC times six would be on his menu of the four options. Actually, it was interesting. I had talked to Peter Ravden because I was trying to use the adjuvant online to calculate her recurrence and risk. And the difficulty I have sometimes in patient with mastectomies on his model, he doesn't really differentiate when he talks about recurrence between local, regional, and distant metastasis is what you're interested in. So Peter's advice to me was just go for survival. Mm-hmm. And so when you run the difference between anthracycline and non-anthracycline regimens, not even TC, these are standard. Yeah. In her case, it was only about a 1% or 2% difference. And so then my thinking in the case, and again, I was trying to stay somewhat detached, is we got about a 1% incidence of leukemia and maybe a 1% or 2% incidence of significant heart problems. So I was actually looking for somebody to tell, you know, in my heart, I didn't want to give her the anthracycline. So after Chuck said that TC was an option and she was comfortable with it, we started her on TC. She's had her fourth cycle. No major complications, but the one thing I've really appreciated is how tired this chemo really makes these patients because she was very active and working out. And now for about a week or 10 days, she can get out of the house, but it's much more difficult on these patients than they really ever tell you. So the other issue that came up was the Zometa issue. And actually, one of my associates who's taken care of her, since she has bone density loss, she had actually been on Fosmax, which we held because she needed a wisdom tooth procedure three months ago. And she's going to wind up on an aromatase inhibitor, actually decided to put her on Zometa at this point. So where we're at now is she's gotten her fourth So that came up after ASCO? That came up after ASCO. Mm -hmm. She was probably going to go on it after we finished the chemo. She said, "Ah, let's just... If she already has low bone mineral density, then that's a pretty easy... So where she is now is she's completed her fourth cycle of TC, no major complications, started the Zometa. She'll be done in around August, and then, of course, we still have to wrestle with the pulmonary carcinoid. Unfortunately, it's kind of deep in the right upper lobe, and our local thoracic surgeon doesn't think he can get it with a scope. So she wants to get another opinion, but she's probably facing a right upper lobectomy after all this is done. So you mentioned that you were struck that her going through chemo was more than what you thought patients went through. In general, what have you felt or observed that you know, kind of surprised you? What have you learned out of the situation? Again, even when I see patients in the office, I usually dwell on asking them the major complications. and I don't really realize how drastic a change this has on their lifestyle. Besides the fatigue, emotionally, it's been very difficult. She had had a hysterectomy about 10 years ago, was on oral hormone replacements. When that alert came out, that was discontinued. But then she developed all sorts of problems, primarily cystitis. And so about a year ago, it was opted to put her back on a low-dose estrogen patch. So, of course, that's been discontinued. And I think between that and the steroids, emotionally, she's been on a roller coaster. I mean, she's really been doing quite well. But you just know that two or three days, 
after she gets her steroids and chemo, you know, whatever she says is fine. You don't argue with her at all those days. But again, I didn't realize how drastic an impact these things have on patients' lives, even when they don't have a major complication. I guess we should say that you discussed with her the possibility of presenting this here so she knows that it's being presented. Another thing that comes up and kind of gets into the consult with Chuck is how do you deal with a patient who either is an oncology healthcare professional or has a spouse who's an oncology healthcare professional? How does the partner or spouse, what's the appropriate way to interact? Is it tough transition to go from being the doctor to being the spouse. Any thoughts, Len? Well, first, I'd like to compliment you on your courage for presenting it here. I've had the exact same situation and didn't present it here, although I've talked about it a lot. I was the one who had to tell my wife that her FNA was positive on a Friday afternoon. She had just come back from caring for her, our first grandchild. And one of the things that struck me through all of everything else that went on was the incredible support and comfort she got out of this grandson. My daughter, who has her own busy practice, brought her down like every other two-hour trip from Boston to New Haven every other week. And this kid was everything to her. And the relationship those two have had, he's now nine. As an infant and little boy, was just absolutely miraculous how it really was one of the major sustaining things. I felt the way you deal with it is honestly and openly. There's no, there can be no secrets, and your concerns have to be her concerns. And what's on your mind has to be on her mind as well. And that's the way her doctors handled it. That's the way I handle it, and I know that's the way you handle it. So I just, you know, I just offer you my congratulations and my admiration and my prayers for her continued health. How did you feel being in the position of the spouse dealing with an oncologist? Well, it was a partner who had the next office to mine and who cared for her, I felt that I wanted him to, I didn't want to be in the examining room, I wanted them to have private time, but he knew and she knew and I knew that I was going to be a part of it. There was no way I couldn't be a a very important part of it. What I felt was important was to be there with her during the time she got chemotherapy. And so we played too many games of gin rummy during that time, and I intentionally lost every game, (laughs) every game, and she knew it, and I knew it, and that was the one thing we didn't talk about. But you just have to be there, and this is part of having a life partner. Did it change your perception of what patients go through? Yeah. The little things, the need for, in her case, for privacy. And so I've always offered patients, you know, we have a large treatment area in our room. I said, listen, if you want to be treated privately. You have that option. You just have to tell me, and we'll go ahead and do that. The need for one nurse that identified with her that she could identify with was very, very important. It was a very rough time for her. It was a very rough time for me. To this day, she believes that her hormonal replacement, which she took for 10 years, was very instrumental, and she took continuous estrogen progesterone, which I believe is responsible for a lot of postmenopausal breast cancer. But she's come out of it. She's on an AI now, and she's doing very well. I interviewed John Marshall from Georgetown for our colon cancer series. And when I saw him, it was about a year or so ago, I said, you know, you look a little bit beat up there. And he said that his wife had just been diagnosed with breast cancer and got chemo, and he discussed it on the program. And I remember the quote he had about it takes a village. And he was just so, in a way, surprised how much it took 
with kids and school and everything just to get through chemo. Bonnie? Yeah, I think that kind of underscores a thought I was having as I was listening to both of the gentlemen. I don't have a spouse with cancer, but I remember when my mother had a GBM and going to the doctor, and I had a real fear that, although I chose a very good oncologist, that that doctor would think, well, she's an oncologist. She'll know to do this. If she wanted this, she would ask. And I was fearful that someone would expect more from me. I wanted to feel freed up to be a daughter. And now after that experience, when I have patients who are relatives of oncologists, I try to remember that and reinforce that freedom so that that person can feel comfortable. I need you as a husband full-time. I can never get I can't hire, I can't call home health to get me a husband. There's only one, and that man does it better than anybody. I can get nurses, so that person doesn't feel so worried. And I wonder, did I view gentlemen feel that, boy, that was a lot on your shoulders? Except for giving her her shot, I've tried to stay detached medically. I don't, when she sees my partner, I don't go in the room with her, and our infusion area is right next door, so I may visit her, but I don't. Her mom actually keeps her company during the infusion area. The other added wrinkle that was, I think, difficult on my wife, having been my office manager before I became employed by the hospital, when she's in the infusion room, she actually bumps into former patients. And I think the old patients, it's amazing how upset they get that she now has cancer and is getting chemotherapy. And I think out of all the interactions that she has, it's when she bumps into the former patients that she was associated with in our office. It's, I think that's probably one of the most difficult situations for her. Mark, what about this issue of seeing patients, you're in the Mecca and people are coming to you who are spouses or mothers or fathers or children of healthcare professionals, maybe your colleagues, maybe people in your own family. How do you draw the line and say, you know, I think maybe I'm too close to this situation to treat you? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we're at liberty to make that decision, and we have to be honest with our patients. If you feel too close to a friend or colleague or whatever, then you shouldn't be their treating physician, and that's perfectly okay to, you know, you're not relinquishing, you know, some duty or responsibility just because you have a close association with them. You're probably doing them a favor. I think your point is well taken that it's critical to treat everybody the same. I see a lot of VIP syndrome situations, and a lot of times where, you know, physicians who have the presumed knowledge that they should just know something, therefore they're not told, and then some complication happens to them that they didn't anticipate for lack of knowledge or just because of stress, they didn't think it through from a medical point of view because they're people too. So I think it's critical to treat everybody the same, give the same instructions to a physician as you would any layperson because they probably aren't hearing it either when you are in the room going through the common side effects, etc., they're going to forget 90% of what you tell them just like a layperson will, and they need to hear it again. Sometimes you presume that because somebody's a doctor, he knows everything you know. If he's not in your field, he doesn't know it. This also brings up the question of the barriers between an oncologist emotionally and their patient, because in this kind of situation, those barriers come down instantly. Well, I think a lot of people outside of oncology say, well, you know, how can you do this? And they talk to you, and I've talked to all of you, and you have feelings about people. Rich, I'm thinking about the lady Carla that you and I have been involved with with education programs over the last few years. It's like your friends. Yeah, you lose that wall after a while, after 10 years of dealing with somebody with metastatic disease who you've seen every week or every other week. I mean, you know, they know about your kids, you know about their kids. You maintain something, 
put it in my experiences and my mother had breast cancer and we've talked about that also that wall gets lower and lower and sometimes you got to take a step back and walk away and bounce it by your partner or whatnot just to refocus on what your role is when you see a fellow you know or somebody who's just kind of new into practice and says well you know how do you get that close to your patients and not get emotionally damaged or do you get damaged how do you protect yourself how do you take care of yourself how do you answer i go to little league games I go to Little League games, and I go home, and I play with my kids, and I have a very supportive wife, and I know there are times that I lose that boundary, and I have to sort of take a step back and refocus. I think you develop that. I think that's part of being an oncologist. I think there's an art to develop, to know where, and there's a fine line sometimes, but to, I think the benefit outweighs the risk of crossing that line. I think... The more you connect with your patients, and again, that's something, when you've been in practice for many years, it's an art. I think it's something that you develop. And We actually did a piece called A Day in the Life about Alan in one of our programs where we actually showed his clinic list on this certain exact day, and he, I think, had 21 patients. And we just put like a few words about what happened with each one. I mean, it was unbelievable at an emotional level what happened that day. You know, you're told like a 45-year-old woman with breast cancer it was time to go to hospice. You know, biopsies for Mets that were positive. Three or four huge personal issues. And, you know, we talked about how do you deal with that? How do you deal with it, Alan? I think you have to set several different levels. And one is you have to know how to do the interactions with the patients. You need to know how to do the interactions with the families. It is something that you acquire over time. People don't become oncologists willy-nilly. If they can't do that, if they don't have those kinds of behavioral traits, they wash out. They drop out of oncology. I think the reason that all of us stay in it is because we have developed those kinds of skills. It's very important to have an outside life. You cannot be single-mindedly devoted only to your practice. You have to have a sense that what you're doing is important, even if it's taking care of a terminally ill patient. It may be the most important thing of all. I think the biggest cause of burnout is a sense of futility. And if you feel like you're providing terminal comfort for a patient, you don't feel like you're doing anything futile. When I talked to you, for example, and I said, we chatted about that day and went through it, and I said, you know, what did you do? I was interested in a couple specific things that you did. Was one, you exercise, and two, you're very interested in religion. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I don't think that they're mutually exclusive things. I think that there is an integration of mind, body, and spirit. It's very popular to talk about it in a new age setting, but I think it's very old wisdom. And to have a sense of the way the universe is constructed and what is the individual role in that setting, I think is an important thing. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to subscribe to one certain religious or philosophical mantra, but to have something that works for you. Yeah, I think it's very important. Alan had sent me an email saying, hey, check out this book. And I have it. I haven't read it yet. But actually, there was a book written by a writer who spent, what, a year at your hospital. Yes. A writer by the name of Julie Salomon has a book just published called Hospital. Man, woman, birth, death, infinity, 
plus money, God, bad behavior, and diversity on steroids. And she spent a year in Maimonides Hospital, which is in Brooklyn. And we have an extraordinary multicultural patient population. And she spent a year at our hospital following me, several other doctors, several administrators. She was given free reign to the entire hospital and wrote this account of what happens in a busy hospital what it's like really working as a doctor, as a nurse, as an administrator, dealing with all the kinds of issues we deal with every day. And what's your answer to preventing burnout in yourself? I don't think there's any really easy answer. I think you need to have some sense that what you do has meaning and some sense that what you do is good and important. And if you do, if you really believe that about the work you do, and I think one crucial aspect of being an oncologist with all the pressures we face... I think we can clearly feel that we are doing something that is a good thing to do every day. And then I think that can help sustain us through tough times. I would say you, and I want to be clear to you, even though I'm a medical oncologist by history, I don't do this now, I do education now. But I would say from what I've seen, you all are saints. Really, I don't get it. I know it's a self-selected group, but how you do this, even though I've done it, I still don't really quite understand. Bonnie? Leonard, when you talked about your wife and the grandchild and then listening to Alan talking about exercise and religion, I think that what we all find is something beautiful to counter. Yes, you have to find meaning, but this is a tragic disease and we fight and we try to claw our way back from tragedy every day. And just as a digress for a second, I'm 48 years old and single, although soon to be married. And for 45 years, I didn't have a husband, didn't have a child, and devoted my life to breast cancer and thought, these are my babies, these are my babies, and my maternal instincts would be satisfied. But I did start to feel the burnout and the sadness. And I, three years ago, flew to Russia and adopted a little baby. And I have to say, I can't tell you how many times I go through my day or my week and I thought, I need a little dose of Kira. I just need her for a little bit and instantly, like exercise, like religion, like your wife holding your granddaughter, like the love, Leonard, you have with her. I think we all have to find something beautiful to balance the tragedy. And I think that's how we find our way through it. Yeah, it's an interesting topic. A couple things. I think there's a difference between academic and community. I started out in academics. When you talk about intracycling, just to give a background for two seconds, I trained a memorial on Mount Sinai. I was a Holland Fellow when he had Holland Fellows. So intracycling is like godlike. I mean, you know, it's idol worship almost, you know, type of thing. And Larry Norton was at Mount Sinai when I was there. So, I mean, it's a difficult change in religion. But I became a hospice director in 1987, and everybody thought I was crazy in 20 years of dealing with that. So I'm the touchy-feely guy. The one area that was very interesting to me and where I've gotten very sensitive to is teenagers and children. And I think that one of the points is, is that the pediatric oncologists were right. They know an awful lot more than we do. And to tell bubamices, to tell stories of what's going on in today's age doesn't make it. It's on television anyway. And I think honesty, one of the hardest things to deal with is being honest because I finished medical school in 79, training in 84, and you really weren't openly and honest about a lot of things during that training. And part of what I have to deal with is being honest. And You're talking about with the children of patients? The children and the patients themselves. And for me, the hardest thing, I, you know, when we're talking about burnout and stuff, is not telling a person they have cancer. I've had a parent I had to do that with, but not a spouse, luckily. But it's when the relapse occurs. And the hardest thing when you're talking about, when you go home and bang your head against the walls, the 10 or 15-year-old person where you've got to say enough. That's been the hardest thing for me to learn, 
The hardest thing to learn when you come from an academic institution, such as a memorial or a Sinai, or when you are a volunteer attending at these institutions, as I am at the medical school, is step back. It's enough. And that's what I've learned after 20 years of maturity of being 57 now in a community practice saying, you know, it's enough. And it's a community thing. It's like, what are you really trying to do? And whether you're dealing with the data for Medicare or something else in the last six months, because sometimes that's retrospective because you don't really know it's the last six months until it happens. But you pull back. And the issue of hospice and being very active in that, one of the things that is striking, and we have both an inpatient and outpatient hospice, we have about 90 patients outpatient, 24 patients in, is that how little time we get. It's unbelievable how, and I'm not going to talk about the cardiologist or the multiple sclerosis patients. I'm talking about just the cancer physicians in my community who know better, who will not send a patient until three or four days before they're dead. You know, we're not talking about the persons whose families I'm going to take care of them when a patient says, I will not go, but who know with a month to go that they're done, that the liver is 90%, that they're yellow, that there's problems, that the family's in crisis. And to get them to admit defeat is an area that we really have not done well in training. And now that I'm involved in some training, the issue of not being so tumor-specific but patient and family-specific is really an area that is fraught with learning for everybody. It's almost like shoots and ladders. You know, you go, you make an advance, you come back. And there is where the burnout is because we all think we're going to cure everybody. That's the whole purpose. And sometimes the best thing we can do is hold, hug, shake hands, and be there. And I admire the physicians who's had to live that, you know, daily horror. But I think we all have gained a lot of things as our patients live longer. Their survivor issues really become from the community into the academics because the academicians now are seeing patients who they never expected to see one, two, five years later. So I think that the family issues become really important. And my relaxations, as I think we can go around the table, and we were talking about this as breakfast, is I'm a youth referee for soccer and baseball all the way up to the high school and college level. And if you really want to get out of your oncology, just listen to parents. And all you need is two hours in a mask or running a field and listening to them screaming at you about offside or balls and strikes, and you get back to reality like that. I tell them, listen, I deal with cancer patients all day. This is relaxation. And the best thing about it is you got, in soccer, you got a yellow and a red card. And I tried that at home, but my two teenage boys just look at me and just say, forget it. Not happening. Just one final point I'm curious from both lens, actually, is sort of the dynamics within the family, within the loved ones, you know, how that went, communications, et cetera, how you dealt with that. Len? No, I think everything went pretty well. I have two older sons, 28 and 25. So actually, my older son's in New York, so he flew home immediately and... My younger son's between jobs, so he's living in the house, which is actually, I guess, similar to your grandson, because that's, he's home. But no, I think everything went pretty well. I think in this situation, my being an oncologist was comforting to all the rest of the family members, because they were confident that she was going to get the best care, because I was being an oncologist, and so the rest of the family was very comfortable. But I think it goes back to a point that Mark made, is one of my biggest fears was, is that me being an oncologist, my wife would actually get poorer care because everybody right. was going to assume that I was yeah. going to tell her everything uh-huh. or make the decisions. And I think that was one of my biggest fears. And I had to make it quite clear to my colleague that, you know, I'm just a husband. I'm not going to be in the exam room and I'm going to try to remain as detached as possible. But that was one thing I was very fearful of is that she would wind up getting poorer care because everybody said, well, your husband's an oncologist. You know, he'll tell you this, he'll tell you that. Has this experience changed your perspective on your life at all? A little bit. I mean, I think it just, I've just realized is you never know what's going to happen the next day. I mean, Friday, everything was fantastic. We're making vacation plans. And then Saturday, you know, whole life is totally different. 
but I think as a family, there's been no changes. We're probably a little stronger now. Everybody's sticking together. Final comment from Len? Our family structure is very strong. We have a daughter who's a pediatrician, and it was her son who provided an enormous amount of comfort and love to my wife during the chemotherapy times. And to hear what Ken said, my mother developed cancer when I was an intern, and she was never told in the nine months she survived after the diagnosis was made. And it was very explicit that the doctors did not want her to tell. And it was very clear that I, busy being an intern, you don't have that much free time, but the free time that I did have, I felt very much apart from her because of that and felt terrible that I couldn't share the burden that she was going through without really knowing what it was all about. That was a long time ago. And I don't think any of us, I'm surprised to even hear that it really still, it's still around, even in small amounts. But I think honesty is really the most important thing. I think it does give you a sense of mortality. And I'm reminded of one of my good friends who I like to play golf. And he says, whenever I say, no, I'm busy, I'm doing this, that, the other thing, listen, you're going to have 10,000 years not to play golf. Come on and play. And I think we all have to find our own outlets or other parts of our lives that can help us deal with what is such an important part of our life. I stopped practicing for two years, thinking I'd be a very, very good administrator and would be able to run a cancer center very well. I'm back in practice again, (laughs) thrilled to be there, and recognizing that every time I close the door behind me, this is the best thing I've done with my professional life, that it's just me and the patient and their family. And I'm sure everybody around the table feels the same way. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing this. It's very hard, but there is the knowledge that we really are helping people. We're doing a lot of good to these people. Mark, final comment? Neil, I just wanted to say this session has been called Meet the Professor, but it arguably should be renamed Professor Meets the Real Doctors. (laughs) It's been really fascinating for me and reassuring and compelling for me to hear all of your perspectives, both the medical decision-making as well as all of the important psychosocial conflicts that you all wrestle with. I just want to say thank you, and I'm reassured that oncology is in good hands, and I hope none of you get too burned out by this. My wife's a practicing oncologist, so I know about burnout. She recently cut back on her hours after we moved to Florida, for example, for some of these same issues that all of you wrestle with. In academia, we're spoiled because I have clinic a couple of half days a week, and I'm on call on the wards a couple of months out of the year, and the rest of the time I can go back to my lab and escape. The world you're in is much different and much more challenging, and it's beyond anything I could probably do.